Alex approached Black Elm as if she were sidling up to a wild animal, cautious in her walk up the long, curving driveway, careful not to show her fear. Welcome to Best Seller, where we read and rate the latest book at the top of the New York Times hardcover fiction list. 20 minutes with us, and you'll know whether to read it or re-gift it. I'm Barbara. And I'm Brian. Today we're reviewing the fantasy novel Hellbent by Lee Bardugo, number one on the January 29th list. Before we get to our number one, what else is happening on the list this week? Four books dropped off this week, Age of Vice by Deepti Kapoor and The Villa by Rachel Hawkins. Both of them dropped off after just one week. A World of Curiosities, Louise Penny's latest Inspector Gamache mystery, is gone after six weeks on the list. And Nicholas Sparks' Dreamland is also off the list, for this week anyway, after a nice run of 16 weeks. Is there anything new on the list? Yep. In addition to our new number one, we also have The House of Wolves by James Patterson and sports writer Mike Lupica, which came in at number two. This is a murder mystery set in the world of NFL team owners and a book I've read already. I know you have. So what did you think of it? Well, let's just say that five minutes listening to any sports talk radio show gives you more inside dirt about the NFL than this novel. It was disappointing for me. You know, others may like it. Also new on the list this week at number 11 is Mary Kubica's Just the Nicest Couple, a suspense novel about a missing husband. Hmm. Yeah. Interestingly, Hernan Diaz's novel Trust, which came out way back in May of 2022, is on the list for the first time at number 15. Wow. I presume it got there because it was named as one of the top books of 2022 by all sorts of publications, New York Times, Washington Post, New Yorker, etc. Well, good for it. So let's talk about the new number one, Hellbent, by Lee Bardugo. Well, let's start with the author. What do we know about her? She's an Israeli-American fantasy author best known for the young adult series set in the Grishaverse. She was born in Jerusalem in 1975 and grew up in Los Angeles. Bardugo earned a degree in English from Yale in 1997 and worked in journalism and also in makeup and special effects before publishing her first novel, the young adult fantasy piece Shadow and Bone, in 2012. And she's been a novelist ever since. Is it Grishaverse or Grishaverse? <laughs> well, I'm What not... are they anyway, Grishas? Grishas or Grishas are what Bardugo calls the magic casters in her mm. fantasy world. She's written seven novels in this series, and then the Netflix adaptation called Shadow and Bone combines storylines from the first trilogy, Shadow and Bone, and the second installment, The Six of Crows duology. Season one has eight episodes, and you and I have watched a little of it. What did you think of it? Well, I liked it. And, you know, I watching the Netflix series, I wouldn't have thought this is young adult. I I don't always know what's young adult, and it doesn't really matter to me. A good story is a good story, and I, I think they're doing a good job with the series. I, I It was well shot, well acted, and, and interesting. Yeah, good effects and interesting um, concepts, I thought. I'm thought i I'm really glad to see this these novels get picked up on Netflix. Yeah. So what about this book, Hellbent? Okay, so Hellbent is 478 pages, published by Flatiron, which is an imprint of Macmillan. Now, this is the second part of a series, which they're calling 
the Alex Stern series. Not exactly a gripping title, but <laughs> that's what they're calling it for now. And it follows up on her 2019 first installment, which is called Ninth House. So is this the second part of a trilogy? Well, they haven't called it a trilogy either. Uh, I'm thinking maybe they don't know how many she's going to write. Maybe they're hoping for 40 or 50 <laughs> or whatever. Or at least a few dozen. Yeah. Um, I don't think it can really be called a duology since the story doesn't really end with Hellbent. Yeah. Too many loose ends for me anyway left hanging. Well, duology, uh, sorry, that's a weird concept anyway, don't you think? Yeah. Trilogy, I get that. I mean, if you have a 15-page story, please split it into three separate volumes for us. You mean 1,500? What did I say? Fifteen. Fifteen hundred page story split it into three <laughs> volumes. Don't make us lug around a book that big. If I want to exercise, I go to the gym. <laughs> but if you've got two 400 page parts, that could be a single volume. Uh, Stephen King, hello? <laughs> yeah, I don't think he knows how to write a story less than 1,100 pages. And I, I think most of his are released as one volume. Yeah. So my little working theory is that duologies are a neat way for the publisher to charge $60 for two books rather than $30 for one. <laughs> Not that I'm being cynical or anything. So to get back on track, the audiobook, 16 hours and 16 minutes, read by Laura Fortgang, who has done a lot of voice work, including some of Bardugo's other novels. I, I found her voice a little thin and tight, but... Very good at expressivity, very good at distinguishing character voices, you know, the most important things in these these novel readings. So let's get into the storyline of Hellbent. Okay. First things first, can you read Hellbent on its own? I cannot. There was just too much background that you need to know, and it's not set up to provide you the background in a clever way. You, you just have to read the first book. Agreed. I tried to read a summary online of Ninth House and then jump right into the beginning of Hellbent did not work. So I thought for our review today, we could just do both of them, like one story. So we'll review Hellbent with Ninth House. Yeah, so let's start by laying out the world Bardugo created. It's set at Yale, the actual Yale University in New Haven in the present. But not just at Yale, within the secret societies of Yale. Which, if you've not heard of them, are sort of like sororities and fraternities, but without all the great parties. Okay. Or maybe different kinds of parties. Yeah. There's a lot of them at Yale, 40 or more, with names like Skull and Bones, Scroll and Key, Manuscript, and Wolf's Head. And that's the one Bardugo herself belonged to. I take it you have to be invited to join. And there are various secrets you learn once you're initiated. And then you graduate and you have a network of fellow insiders you can draw on for the rest of your life as you claw your way to the top of whatever you know, government, business, academia, publishing, wherever you are. <laughs> Apparently just being Ivy League isn't enough of a boost. <laughs> the secret societies are attempts to create an elite of the elite. So what Bardugo has done is she's taken something that actually exists, which I didn't know much about the secret societies, and she added one thing to them, magic. Which is kind of brilliant because they what they do there is secret, by definition. So who knows? Maybe they really are doing magic behind those closed doors. How would we know? She <laughs> takes the biggest uh, eight secret societies at Yale and calls them Houses of the Veil, as in the veil between you know worlds. And then it gives each of them a special area of magic casting. Skull and Bones does divination using human and animal entrails. And yeah. she actually, yeah, and she has a, a couple actual scenes of that. Scroll and Key does portal magic, which is always fun. 
Manuscript as mirror magic and glamours, in other words, making yourself look like another person, and so on. And then she adds a ninth house, thus the name ninth house. This one doesn't correspond to any of the actual secret societies, and she calls it Lethe or Lethe. I think L- it's Lethe, but only because I listened to part of the audiobook. L E T H E. That house is made up. And it's kind of a, a babysitting service for the ancient eight houses of the veil, which apparently tend to get into trouble. <laughs> Let's remember, these are college undergraduates here, kids practically messing around with all kinds of powerful incantations and occult energy. And sometimes the energy spills out and people get hurt. Kind of like frat parties. <laughs> yeah, except with... This case with ghosts and demons. So Lethe's job is to monitor all these rituals. They have a senior whose title is Virgil. And every four years, he or she recruits a freshman called Dante to be trained in the duties and special powers of Lethe and eventually take over as Virgil when the Dante becomes a senior. Right. So the new Virgil at Yale is a young woman named Galaxy Stern. Actually, she's the new Dante. The new Dante, of course. She's the new one. And her name is Galaxy Stern. Very cool name. They call her Alex for short. So we're going to play an audio example from Hellbent in which Alex is monitoring a ritual at Book and Snake. That's the house that specializes in necromancy, which is what? Communication with the dead. (laughs) Right. So in this example, Jacob Yashevsky a, quote, friend of Russian hackers everywhere, died on a yacht just 24 hours ago, and a four-star general who needed some passwords from the deceased requests the help of Book and Snake. The corpse began to twitch, muscles spasming, bouncing off the iron floor like hot kernels in a pan. The snake released its grip, and Dyshevsky's body sprang into a deep crouch, feet wide, hands cupping its knees, waddling like a crab, but with a speed that made Alex's skin crawl. Its face, his face, was stretched into a grimace, eyes wide and panicked, mouth pulling down like a theatrical mask of tragedy. I need passwords, said the general as the corpse capered around the temple. Solid intel, not... He waved his hand through the air, damning the domed crypt, the students in their robes, and poor dead Jacob Yashevsky in a single gesture. Fortune-telling. We'll get you what you need, the priest replied smoothly. But if you're asked to reveal your sources, you think I want oversight sniffing around this Illuminati bullshit? Alex couldn't see the priest's face beneath his veil, but his scorn was clear. We are not the Illuminati. Posers, muttered one of the lettermen standing near Alex. Not the Illuminati, posers. (laughs) Yeah, so that's Alex doing her thing at Yale as part of this Lethe group. She's actually from L.A., and her life before the series starts is a big, hot mess. Her grades are terrible. She's involved with... Low-level drug dealers has several arrests on her record and some sort of very messy, violent incident she was the sole survivor of. She's going nowhere. Until? Until the folks at Lethe figure out she's got one great and rare power that they can really use back on the East Coast. She can see ghosts. 
apparently ghosts gather around these rituals and can really mess things up. So one of Lethe's jobs is to keep the ghosts away. There is an elixir that the Dante and the Virgil can take to give them the ability to spot ghosts, but apparently the elixir tastes terrible and really messes up your health. So you can see how the power of being able to see ghosts without any elixir is very appealing. Instant scholarship at Yale for Alex. So that's set up. What's the story in a nutshell? Two main plot lines, one which is resolved in the first volume, Ninth House, and then the other one sort of propels you into the second volume, Hellbent. There's a New Haven girl named Tara, not a Yale student, who gets killed, stabbed in the chest. The powers that be at Lethe, the alumni who actually run it, don't really care about some townie, and they quickly jump to the conclusion that the murder has nothing to do with the Houses of the Vale. But Alex... The hero is not so sure. Right. So storyline number one is Alex digging into what actually happened to Tara, sometimes with the help of the higher-ups at Lethe, but more often against them. Okay. And storyline number two? Alex's mentor, or Virgil, whose name is Darlington, has disappeared. They think mm -hmm. he's been pulled into the underworld, and they, Alex and her allies, want to get him back. Once again, without really any cooperation with the higher-ups in Lethe, that storyline is not resolved in Ninth House. Right. The last sentence of Ninth House just kind of propels you into the second volume. Here's how she ends that. Quote, Darlington was on the other side of something terrible, waiting for rescue. Someone had to steal him back. So, Alex said, as the wind picked up, shaking the new leaves on their branches, moaning over the gravestones like a mourner lost to grief. Who's ready to go to hell? Count me in. <laughs> okay, I take it you liked this series. Yeah, didn't you? Yeah, I did. It took me a little while to get fully on board, but I did like it. So let's go into our review section. And we go by, on um, bestseller, we go by five categories of review. The first one is called Grab and Grip. One of the most important things about a book. Does it pull you in? Does it keep you there? What'd you think? Yeah, it did. It, it did grab me from the beginning. I loved it. I loved the way that um, the, the way that she wrote. I loved the story. I loved I, I loved everything about it. And I gave this category a four. A four out of five, right? Yes. So I also gave it a four. And I'm not a big fantasy reader, but I found the all the things at Yale really interesting. And even the magic was all done very well and had interesting twists to it. But also, this book has a lot of suspense elements in it. Like, it could almost be put in the crime or suspense section of the bookstore. And that helped me as a mystery reader. So I definitely was pulled in and kept in, uh, really, for both volumes. Yeah, and I think I just wanted to... It seemed like we were having a little trouble with the whole magic thing, and it seemed like it resolved when I suggested that the magic doesn't actually necessarily work. <laughs> well, that was an interesting thought that you had. I don't know if any other reader had that thought, but you were right. When I went back, I'm like, she doesn't actually show these kids, these little Ivy League kids fooling around with magic, successful. So maybe they're all deluded. I don't know. That's a very interesting thought. But however it worked, it did get me pulled in. I enjoyed the world and the characters and the suspense. Good writing. The yes. next category of evaluation for us is what we call She Got Flair, which is <laughs> writing style. Yes. Does this writer have some verve, right? Does, um, 
some sparkle. Does it jump off the page or does it lie there flat? What did you think about She Got Flair? Oh, I had so many examples of really great phrases, really great writing. Mm -hmm. Um, And one that we both um, sort of mentioned, like we take, we read separately, right? And we take our notes separately. And one of the ones we both mentioned was um, one of her lines, there was enough food to feed an entire acapella group if they would stop humming for a minute. Well, that, that's an example of wit. I just I laughed out loud at that line. Yeah. And then after I got through both volumes, I realized she brought in acapella groups like three times. Yeah, so I'm not. I think she might think that acapella means singing. She doesn't really get oh, maybe well, that's that a, acapella doesn't. It, it's a specific type of singing without accompaniment. So, whatever it is, it was funny, and yes. she's got other funny lines too. And then. Also, her description, her descriptions are good. I'll give her an example of some of that. She in Hellbent, she writes the line: "He looked like an actor playing a man whose wife had just asked him for a divorce." <laughs> you know, that's good. Another that's one, one: his voice was bleak, cold, something left at the bottom of a lake. Yeah, that's good. One of the ones that I really, really appreciated was um, the image of uh, disappearing into the long sprawl of the San Fernando Valley, the rows of little houses like stucco mausoleums in their tiny plots. I just thought that was really a great description. Good stuff. And the last example I'll give on this category, She Got Flair, is dialogue. That's another thing that we look at, right? And a lot of her dialogue is, is snappy. Here's an example. Why don't, why don't you read um, her part? Um, Alex- and I'll read the, the mail. The mail in this dialogue is Turner, which is one of the police officers she works with a lot. And he's in on all the magic, but he's actually a police officer. Um, Where it says Alex sat forward. Oh, Alex sat forward. Kate Masters? Yeah. Blonde, real cute, but kind of butch. Tell me more about your taste in women. Really? No, you ass. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, it's good dialogue. And, and I gave this category a four. Yeah, I gave it a four as well. There's one description that I really, really want to mention Okay. Um, that I sort of skipped over. But like this was, for me, this was like the best retort to someone, um, a, someone in power who is suggesting that a woman gets attacked and it's her fault. Um, and so this, this Dawes character is sort of mousy and she mm-hmm. would rather sit on the floor with her index cards for her PhD or whatever, um, her research, rather than um, confront anyone ever. But she says to the dean, she says, that sounds a lot like she was asking for it, Dean Sandow. Um, And then she sort of, the author unleashes this beautiful scene um, Mm -hmm. and says, you know, the, the man suggests oh, well, I wasn't implying anything, right? And she says, but that is the implication in a voice Alex had never heard her use before, clear and incisive. Her eyes are cold. Alex has indicated her own concerns regarding her assault. And instead of hearing her out, you've chosen to question her credibility. You may not have meant to imply anything, but the intent and the effect were to silence her. So it's hard not to think this stinks of victim blaming. It's the semantic equivalent of saying her skirt was too short. And I love that. That was Dawes speaking? That was Dawes speaking. So Dawes speaking. is in Lethe, but she's, uh, I don't really understand her position, Oculus, she's called. And you're right, it was it was really dramatic because she, because Alex were used to speaking back to power. Like, she's consistently 
you know, cynical and and derisive and so on. But all of a sudden, Dawes has this moment. So that was yeah. really cool. Let's go on to the next category of review, which we call Beam Me Up. This is the world. Is this a world that's drawn well, that we that we uh, that we feel like spending a little bit of time in? And um, we already talked about this world quite a bit when we were setting up the story. It's the world of Yale secret societies and magic. I wanted to mention for this category that Lee Bardugo did a lot of research. Like this is good writing. She uh, she went to Yale. She has a fellowship at Yale. And I noticed in the back of the book under the acknowledgments, she said all of the street names are accurate, all the building descriptions. She's really done her research to create this world of Yale and the secret societies. Now, I presume what happens behind closed doors, she's making up. Well, we don't know, do I we? Mean, <laughs> well, we do know. They're not allowed to share these secrets. Oh. So she's making up. But she, she even said that like there's a big sequence in the library. And she said every quote that's carved into stone inside the library is is legit. She She's not making that stuff up. We could take a road trip and go find out. And she, <laughs> she herself was a member of a secret society at Yale. And by the way, she doesn't talk about that one as much in the book. So that's true. I thought that might have been awkward for her if she could get in trouble for revealing any actual secrets. So let's talk about the other part of the world, um, not the external world of Yale and New Haven, but the magic part. Uh, that's really a big part of this book and fantasy in general. So what did you think about that? I thought that the magic part was um, was really clever. It wasn't, um, it's like, it was for me, it was like how magic would really be if they could really do this. Like mm-hmm. it was, it was sort of dirty and gritty and, and um, it was used by those in power, just like everything else that they use. Um, and it was... I, I thought it was um, insightful. This is what people would do if they could do these things. You know, she's very clear about that. She mentions it throughout. Um, and it was interesting to me. It's it's like she knows these people and she's imagining how would they behave if they had access to magic on top of all the other privileges and, and so on. And um, she ends up with a pretty cynical view of the society's grubby, ambitious, self-seeking one of her quotes was the game was rigged from moment one and another quote is magic wasn't something gilded and benign but just another commodity that only some people could afford and that that perspective works for me the the most extreme example of this is a scene uh where they're they in order to cast their spell they need four murderers don't ask me why. It's magic. Okay? <laughs> In order to make their spell work so they can get to Darlington and rescue him, they need four murderers. And so they have to find one in, in the town. And they there's a map, a three-dimensional map, hidden away in the basement somewhere that has this incredible property that if you name a crime to it, it lights up where people who've perpetrated that crime are located in New Haven. But listen to this scene, this audio example, where it gets pretty intense. When was this created? There's no exact date. Roughly. His voice was harsh. 
Dawes tucked her chin into her sweatshirt. 1850s? I know what this is, Turner said. What the actual fuck? Dawes winced, and now Alex understood why she had worried about having Turner here. This thing wasn't built to find criminals, said Turner. It was made to find runaway slaves. We needed a way to find killers, she said. I didn't know what else. Do you understand how fucked up this is? Turner jabbed his finger at a grand-looking building on the New Haven Green. That's where the Trowbridge house used to be. It was a stop on the Underground Railroad. People thought they would be safe here. They should have been safe here, but some asshole from the societies used magic. He stumbled over the word. This is what your magic is for, isn't it? This is what it does. Props up the people in power. Let's the people with everything take a little more. Yeah, so that's pretty intense. And it really makes the point about how self-serving the, the use of magic. These are, these are powerful, privileged people who are using magic in order to like game the stock market. And in this case, in order to find runaway slaves back in the 1850s. And Turner, by the way, is African-American. So that was, that was pretty intense. But I... I like her going in that direction. It rings true to me, and it makes the whole book a little weightier. And yeah. it's not just magic for fun and games. Absolutely. Um, the one thing that was strange about it for me, and I thought about it quite a bit, was you know when she think, says things like the game is rigged from moment one, and she's got you know here's a quote uh, about how powerful these insiders are. The ancient eight have yielded some of the most powerful men and women in the world, people who literally steer governments, the wealth of nations who forge the shape of culture. They've fixed nearly every World Series, six Super Bowls, the Academy Awards, and at least one presidential election. I mean, that line has to jump out at you because we have a political situation right now in this country where a lot of people think it's fixed. Everything's fixed. And it's fixed by these Ivy Leaguers behind the scenes and maybe even to the point of throwing a presidential election. Now, this was written in 2019 because this is from the first volume, this particular quote. So it's also clairvoyant. <laughs> <laughs> but my point is, do we really want more people writing things that stoke this like paranoia and conspiracy mongering? I mean, what do you think about that? Well... I don't know. I th I feel like maybe that goes a little beyond re reviewing this book. I think that it it, it does. Um, it, it's the kind of thing that is attractive to many, mm -hmm. um, and so. But I don't think you have to be a conspiracy monger to enjoy this fiction. That's fine. I, I was just thinking about it. I wasn't sure where I came down on it. She's got a lot of quotes, by the way, about the sort of inherent appeal of magic. And I wasn't, you know, talking about how this is something we all wanted when we were children and how great it was to find that there really is magic in the world, uh, these people who are invited in at Yale. And I was trying to remember from my own case, like, was magic something I believed in when I was a kid? And then I had to be uh, dissuaded of that and you know she's she's clearly tuned into the loss of that sense of the magical and mystical what do you think about that well i think there is an aspect of childhood that you can well at least i can still remember where so much of the world was yet unexplained and so things seemed 
Like even cars look magical until you understand internal combustion engines, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think that when we think we have it all figured out is when that magic sort of dies. And you, I think you, when we were talking about this before we started recording, you gave me an example of of magic that I did have to let go and I did have an emotional reaction to. Which you can't say. Yes, you can. <laughs> Santa Claus. Oh, no. And as soon as you gave me that example, I'm like, you're right. <clears throat> that was a loss. I still remember when I concluded, perhaps falsely, <laughs> that Santa Claus may not be real. So that's an example that works for me, that I I had a belief in magic and then it came under question well, and how great it would be if it came back and turned out to be real. So I never, just for the record, I never concluded that same conclusion and I would encourage anyone else out there who's concerned about it to also mm-hmm. stay with me in believing in the our magic. Our podcast is child friendly. <laughs> We're trying. So, so what did we give on this category? I think we both gave it four. I gave it a four. So that's beam me up world building. Two more categories of review. One is called new best friends. Very important category. Do you like the characters? Do you want to hang out with them or can you not wait to get away. So I'll I'll start on this. I think she's good. She's good at character development and differentiation, better than the, a number of other writers out there. Uh, that of course she puts the most work into Alex's character, who's basically a survivor. Um, you know, she comes from a really rough background, and and she brings that out throughout the novels. Uh, it's really interesting to see somebody with that background at Yale. Well, it's also really great to see someone with that background who is still striving and still hoping and still moving forward in life. It's so easy for those who have been through so much mm-hmm. to, to give up or to sort of um, end end the line. Like they're, they end up not going as far. And um, this character, I think, gives all of us hope that you can go through all kinds of stuff and um, and keep going and keep keep giving them helly. Well, I mean, it gives you hope if you happen to be one in a million who can spot ghosts without taking an elixir. It's still got that <laughs> that weird thing that they seem to like in fantasy novels, where it's all driven by discovering some superpower that you have. Um, so either that works for you, or it doesn't. But that background that she has in L.A., where she was really in the underworld and you know, she doesn't know where her father is. She's been in jail and all that. It gives her a certain kind of moral view that I think Bardugo develops quite well. Now, I'll just read a quote that brings it out. Why didn't these people ever get it? Protect your own. Pay your debts. There was no other way to live. Not if you wanted to live right. So Alex's perspective, for better or worse, is I'm going to take care of the people that are close to me, period. So she's a survivor taking care of herself and a small network of, you know, her team, her yeah. crew. She doesn't have a bigger project that she's after in this right. book. She's not trying to save the world. Right. So uh, well-drawn character. Um, anything else about this char- about this category? Any other characters that drew you in? Or Yeah, so I had, I, I really enjoyed... Um, the Darlington character, the Dawes character, the um, the character of her roommate, mm-hmm. um, and I thought that was all very 
realistic and understandable and believable, the the scenes in the dorms and so forth. I thought those were great and made me remember fondly my roommates in college. There were some things that were a little off for me. Did you notice that like her relationship with her mother is is a little strained, which is which is fine and interesting. And but she continually puts her down for being too new agey. I'm saying Alex puts her mom down. Um, yeah. Like, here's one quote. Was there a name for someone doomed to seek invisible patterns in gemstones and horoscopes? <laughs> and I'm like, do you know that from the outside, all that new age stuff looks very much like what you're doing on the inside in these <laughs> secret societies? So why is she, like, considered a crazy person for, uh, you know, right. using gemstones and you're not crazy? So... I gave it a four for characters. I thought, which is a good score. I don't. Yeah, you don't get fours out very easily. I give this a four as well. I I am maybe a little more generous with my fours. (laughs) So lastly, before we read the book overall, our fifth category is all the feels. This is kind of what we're usually looking for in fiction. Do we have an emotional reaction to the story, to the book, to the characters? How'd you do on this one? I, I had all the feels. I laughed. I cried. Um, I pondered. I marveled. Um, and we and I enjoyed talking about it with you as the as as the reading went on. And so I I gave this one a four as well. I gave it a three, which is still a, a decent score out of five. I there were some creepy moments, which I think you're looking for in a book like this. I thought some of the you know the ritual scenes that she developed did have that actual creepiness so i appreciated that um i did get invested i would say more interested in the story the the suspense part of it maybe not so much invested i noticed at the end of volume two it's clearly a setup for multiple future volumes of this what i would call team of demon hunters that she's established and that's just not a project that interests me all that much there was one quote though when she said let me just read this from near the end of hellbent what do you want at the end of all this alex this is turner the police officer asking her freedom money a week-long nap and then she says i just want to be allowed to live maybe maybe i want to see this whole place undone i don't know yet now that's that's a storyline that I think I would get some emotional investment in. You're trying to tear the whole system down, you know, the whole grubbing system of insiders using magic to, you know, to enhance their stock portfolio. I'd like to see that torn down, too. But but where <laughs> she goes at the end of, of volume two, Hellbent, is oh, let's go. Let's go hunt some more demons. That'll be fun. So I gave it a three. Now, when you add all our scores together. It comes out at a 39, which dividing by 10, because there are 10 scores, 3.9, which on Goodreads, which doesn't do decimal points, that's a four. Yeah, that's a four, and that's pretty good. I consider that a good score. So I'd like to thank everyone for joining us at Bestseller. I'm Brian Luke. I'm Barbara Luke. You can check us out at brianandbarbara.com or follow our Goodreads accounts. And we will see you next episode. Until then, keep dreaming, keep flying, keep laughing, keep crying. And don't stop till you've read them all. 